Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are the risen king. You came to this earth, this broken world that we had messed up in so many ways because of our sin. You came into this world. You came to teach, to live, live a perfect life, but then to die. But you didn't stay dead. You rose again three days later. And now you're enthroned in heaven. King of kings, Lord of lords. And Lord, we praise you. There is no one else worthy of the praise that you deserve. And Lord, now as we come to this time of opening scripture together, we pray that you will give us clarity of understanding into what you have done, into the significance, not only of your death, but also of your resurrection and how that can apply to our lives even here today in the 21st century. So please be our teacher today that we may learn from you and apply your word to our lives. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, one of the most difficult facts of life is the reality of death. Over the last few years, I've developed a very sophisticated phrase to describe the common response when someone loses a loved one. And that sophisticated phrase is this, death stinks. Death stinks. I mean, it's, it's a highly sophisticated phrase that really captures well the response, death stinks. And because death stinks, many people want to avoid or ignore the reality of death. It makes people very uncomfortable. We try to prolong our lives as long as possible, justifiably so, but we, we don't want to face that reality of our own mortality. The topic of death becomes a topic of joking for some people, perhaps because it makes them uncomfortable or they just, you know, have fun with it. I think of Winston Churchill, for instance, who once famously said, I am prepared to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. So, so you have Winston Churchill certainly did not lack for self-confidence. But the reality is that death stinks. I mean, we don't like it. Even Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. But Jesus can radically change our perspective on the truths and the, and the realities around death. And that is what we are looking at today. Last week, uh, there was a tragedy in the NBA family. NBA is National Basketball League. There's an assistant coach for the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder named, uh, named Monty Williams. And his wife died in a car accident. He's very well respected around the league. But his wife was driving her car. Uh, another vehicle crossed the center line and hit her head on. And she died from those injuries, leaving by not, not only her husband, but five children. And, I mean, just a tragedy that really rocked a lot of people there. And I want to show you in a minute a video clip from from the funeral. It's Monty Williams speaking as he is just talking about um, the significance of what Christ does to give hope beyond the grave. Just prior to this clip, he has shared about his wife. He's talked about the gospel. He has talked about how his wife pointed him to Christ when he was facing some very deep, hard challenges in his life. And then we're going to come to this part in the clip that comes at the end of what he shares in his funeral. So take a look at the screen. This is hard for my family, but this will work out. And my wife would punch me if I were to sit up here and whine about what's going on. That doesn't take away the pain. But it will work out because God causes all things to work out. You just can't quit. You can't give in. See, the Bible says Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And America teaches us to just, 
numb that, and it's not true, but it is true. All you got to do is look around you. Get outside of these walls, and you know it's true. This will work out. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Doesn't mean we don't have tough times, and we're going to have tough times. What we need is the Lord, and that's what my wife tried to exhibit every single day. Now, I'm going to close with this, and I think it's the most important thing that we need to understand. Everybody's praying for me and my family, which is right. But let us not forget that there were two people in this situation. And that family needs prayer as well. And we have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will towards the Donaldson family. And we, as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. So let's not lose sight of what's important. God will work this out. My wife is in heaven. God loves us. God is love. And when we walk away from this place today, let's celebrate because my wife is where we all need to be. And I'm envious of that. But I got five crumb snatchers I got to deal with. <laughs> I love you guys for taking time out of your day to celebrate my wife. We didn't lose her. When you lose something, you can't find it. I know exactly where my wife is. I'll miss holding her hand. I'll miss talking with my wife. Um, Sam and Coach Donovan probably couldn't figure out why I always wanted to get out of the office, uh, me and Mo Cheeks. Um, Mo probably wanted to go do something else, but we always wanted to get out of the office. I just enjoy being with my wife. I enjoy being with my family. And most of the times we didn't do anything. We'd just be at the house sitting around um, doing nothing. I'm going to miss that. Let's not lose sight of what's important. God is important. What Christ did on the cross is important. Let's not lose sight of that family that also lost someone that they love. I love you guys. I hope I get a chance to hug and shake a hand and give a kiss on the cheek. But let's keep what's important at the forefront. Thank you. So death, it's hard. I mean, you can hear the pain, the, the, the sadness of missing his wife, missing the mother of their children. But you hear the, the hope as well, how Jesus can transform our perspective where there is a confidence and a hope beyond the grave. And it's this hope of resurrection that we are going to be looking at over the next six weeks together. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Frequently in the weeks leading up to Easter, we focus on some aspect of Jesus' death and then his resurrection, but frequently it's more focused on, on Jesus' death and on sin. It's kind of a dark and heavy type of subject to prepare us for the celebration of the resurrection. But frequently, like I said, it's a heavy topic. For instance, last year, our series leading up to Easter was called Crosswords, which focused on what Jesus accomplished through his death and his resurrection. But you know what? There were big theological terms. They, they were kind of heavy at times. 
The year before that, we went through a series called The Fall, which looked at Genesis chapter 3, the downward spiral of sin that began in the Garden of Eden and continues still today. And then the year before that, we went through the Easter experience, which is all about the suffering that Jesus underwent and then, and then his death on the cross. And so these have been the topics the last few years, these topics that are they're kind of heavy, kind of looking at the sad, hard, thing, hard side of things. And so what ends up happening is we spend weeks and weeks focusing on Jesus' death and his suffering, and we spend one day focused on his resurrection. To me, that seems a little bit disproportionate. And so this year, we're focusing specifically on the resurrection. And when I think about the resurrection, I think, you know what, there are many places in Scripture that talk about these topics, but the one premier passage of Scripture that focuses on the resurrection is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that's what we're going to be walking through over the next six Sundays together. And 1 Corinthians 15 focuses not only on Jesus' resurrection, but it focuses particularly on our resurrection as well when we have our faith in Christ. And so we're just going to walk sequentially step by step through this over the coming weeks. But we're going to start out just by looking at how Paul starts it all off in verses 1 and 2. He says, Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So here Paul is starting off just calling the people to remember the gospel. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel. Now, gospel is a term that we use quite frequently here at Freedom's Church, but it can create some confusion in people's minds, wondering, okay, this term gospel, we don't use that much today. What is the gospel? Well, we have to understand that gospel in its most basic form simply means good news. It means good news. It was typically used in the military context back in the ancient world. For instance, you would have an army who would be off in some distant land fighting a battle. And if they won that battle, they would send the messenger back to the capital city. The messenger would come, go into the town square, perhaps raise his hand, get everyone's attention, and declare the gospel, saying, rejoice, we've won the victory. That was seen as the gospel. He was an evangelist bringing the good news. So, so gospel in its basic essence simply means good news, typically of some sort of victory. Now when Paul here is talking about the gospel, he's not talking about a military victory. But he's still talking about a victory, and we're going to get in a few minutes to the content of what this victory, what this good news is all about. But we see here that Paul preached the gospel to the people in Corinth. He said, uh, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. We see in Acts chapter 18 that Paul spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth teaching the gospel to them, preaching the gospel, helping them to apply the gospel to their lives. Corinth, if you're wondering, it's a city in southeastern Greece. Uh, Now it's in ruins, but it was a major bustling city back then. So he was there. He preached the gospel to them, and he said, you received the gospel as well. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. You have to understand that there are two different sides of communication. There's a side of communication that is the communicator saying something, externalizing some sort of message. That is an important part of communication. And Paul says, I did that. I preached the gospel to you. But there is the other side as well that in order for communication to be effective, the message must be received. And this is frequently where communication breaks down. 
And if you are a parent, you probably experience this on a very regular basis. I, I can think of hundreds of examples from the last week in my house where this has happened, where as a parent, Shelly or I communicate something, but it's not really received uh, very well. Let me just give one category of issues that we are having now. With our daughter, Tahila, she just turned four last week. She has an issue with sitting in her chair and eating a meal. She thinks she has so much that she needs to do rather than sit and eat. And so a common uh, sequence of things is, is like, okay, Tahila, it's time to eat. Please come and get in your chair. And then, I mean, she struggles to receive that and apply that. And then we finally get her into her chair. Tahila, please stay in your chair. Please keep your feet off the table. Stuff like that. And, and she struggles to do that. Then, then it turns into Tahila, please come back. Get back in your chair. I mean, it's that type of sequence of things. And, you know, it's hard because she really doesn't care whether she eats or not. So we can't really use the food as leverage to keep her at the table. We're like, okay, if you want to eat, now's the time. You need to be here. Because she doesn't care if she eats or not. She wants to go do all these other things. And so we have this issue of, you know what? Shelly and I are very clearly communicating a message. Tila, please come. Sit in your seat. Eat supper. It's important and good to eat. It's good to be together as a family. But frequently, she is not receiving that message very well. She ignores it. She rebels against it. She starts laughing. You know, that, that's what happens when you're a parent. But this type of dynamic takes place all over the place. I mean, it takes place in marriages. It takes place in workplaces, at school, where messages are given, but they're really not received and acted upon. But Paul says, this message I preach to you, you receive this message. He's speaking there to the Corinthians. They received it. They internalized it. They took it and not only agreed with it, but they really applied it to their lives. He went on to say, um, there's this gospel on which you have taken your stand. So they took their stand on the gospel, saying that is their foundation in their lives. And that is very important because, as he says next, by this gospel, you are saved. Now, this term saved is something that Christians use a lot. Uh, let me just give a very basic description of what it's talking about. This idea of being saved is just the idea of deliverance. It's deliverance from sin and evil and death and deliverance to a righteousness with God that comes through Christ. That's really what being saved is. But then Paul makes a very kind of startling and interesting statement. He says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now, what he's referring to here is the recognition that not everyone who calls himself a Christian or everyone who goes to church is a true believer. Not everyone who goes to church on a regular basis will necessarily go to heaven when they die. Because if this belief in Jesus is just a, a set of intellectual beliefs that people agree with in their mind, but they don't actually put them in their practice, they don't internalize them they aren't really living a Christ-like life, aren't growing spiritually. Paul says, you know what? That belief, that intellectual agreement is in vain. That's why in, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. He doesn't take it for granted that just because a person is active in church or just because... You know what, they do religious activities just because they call themselves a Christian. He doesn't take it for granted that, you know what, yeah, you definitely are a Christian because God looks at the heart. 
So he's saying, you know what, examine yourselves. Be careful that you, you internalize the gospel. You really let the gospel bear fruit through you. You are receptive and obedient to what God's calling you to through Scripture and through the gospel rather than just intellectually agreeing and then going about your way living your own life. So Paul's reminding the people of the gospel. Now I said that we were going to come back to what is the, the idea of the gospel here. What's the main content of it? And that's what we're going to get to next here. In verses um, 3 through 8, Paul outlines the gospel. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So here Paul outlines the gospel. And I'm calling this for our sake today the resurrection gospel. And the reason is because we're highlighting how the resurrection is so central to the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. He says that this is news of first importance. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now in that video we watched of Monty Williams as he was speaking at his wife's funeral, I I watched it a couple different times this week, and I realized there's a particular phrase he keeps repeating. He uses slightly different terminology, but it's the same concept. He says it four different times in that video clip, and it's things like, let us not lose sight of what's most important. Let's keep what's most important at the forefront. And by saying that and repeating that, what he's trying to do is help people to recognize, you know what, pay attention to what I'm saying here. This is something you need to latch on to, need to internalize. It's important. Pay attention. And that's what Paul's saying as well when he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. He's saying, okay, even if you've been daydreaming up to this point, even if you've been thinking about something else, what you're going to do later, listen up. Pay attention because this is important. And then he outlines it. He, I mean, he talks about um, Christ. Um, died, he's risen, stuff like that. We'll get more into that in just a minute. But what he's doing is pointing out the importance of the gospel. How the gospel is of utmost importance for anyone who wants to follow Christ. This is one of the reasons why, as a church, we have what we call our up and out triangle, which talks about the three key relationships of Christ followers. But right in the middle, we put the word gospel to remind us that what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection is central to everything we do. The gospel shapes and empowers our up relationship with God. The gospel shapes and empowers our in relationship with other Christians. And the gospel shapes and empowers our out relationship with the surrounding world. The gospel is to be first and foremost in the central, uh, centrality point of everything that we do. The gospel is of first importance. And then after Paul says it's of first importance, he lays out the, the main content, the essence of the gospel. He does it in what I would call a Jesus creed. A Jesus creed. Now you may be wondering, okay, what is a creed? What are we talking about here? Well, I mean, we have a movie out now called Creed. There's a band called Creed. So what's this creed talking about here? Well, a creed is a set of formalized statements that communicate some sort of truth, and typically a truth that's recited word for word and passed down through the generations to help uh, people in the future remember these important truths. And here is what I believe 
uh, the creed is. And one of the reasons I, I hear it being a creed is, I mean, verse 3 says, For what, what I received, I passed on to you. So he received it. It was something that existed before he's speaking here. Someone passed it on to him, and he's passing it on to these Corinthian believers. So he received it, and this is a creed that I believe dates back to probably within just a few years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's the content of the creed, verses 3 through 5. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. I think that's where the creed cuts off. And there are a couple of reasons why I think those three verses, 3 through 5, are the creed that he is passing on. One of the reasons is the repetition of the word that. Now you may be thinking that. We just throw that word around all the time. Our English teacher in high school probably tried to get us to use the word that less. But here it is repeated over and over. And the reason I believe that is very important is because back in the ancient Greek language, they didn't have quotation marks. So if you were writing something out and you had a quote that you wanted to, to set apart, you would use a word that we translate as the word that. And so you look at this passage. Let me read it again for us, emphasizing the word that. Maybe you'll pick it up here. Okay. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Did you hear all the that's in there? I believe that those that's are pointing these direct quotes that, that contain the creed that Paul received and is now passing on. And one of the other reasons I think the creed stops after verse 5 is that the, the style changes a little bit after verse 5. Verses 6 through 8, it gets a little bit less formal. And in fact, in verse 8, Paul actually includes himself from the first-person perspective, saying, And last of all, Jesus appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, you would not have that in a creed. You would not have Jesus appear to me. You wouldn't have that at all. But what Paul's doing is passing on the creed and then adding to it to help just illustrate the importance of Jesus' resurrection. And when we look at this creed, there are really two important parts. There, and the two important parts are the death and the resurrection. It points out there's an inseparable bond between Jesus' death and his resurrection. Let me, let me just show you what this looks like in this creed that, that Paul's laying out here. These two parallel parts. There are two events being talked about here. And the two events, first of all, we have that Christ died for our sins. The second event, he was raised on the third day. Those are the two main events being talked about here. And then there are two references to the sacred roots of these truths. And they're, they're exactly the same, identical in both cases, in accordance with the scriptures, showing that what took place in Jesus' death and resurrection was in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Then each of these events has a historical proof that helps validate the event. So we have the event Christ died for our sins, the proof, he was buried. You bury someone who was dead, that shows that he was dead. The second event, he was raised from the dead. What's the historical proof? He appeared to Cephas, who is that's another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. And so what we have here are these two events that are absolutely central to the gospel. And just to make sure we're clear on this, we have to understand that if there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. 
Without the resurrection, there isn't the gospel. Remember, the gospel is the idea of a victory. A victory. Without Jesus' uh, resurrection, he did not win the victory. I mean, and, and think about it. I mean, he would be dead. I mean, maybe he was a great teacher. Maybe he did a lot of great things. But he would be dead nonetheless. He didn't win that ultimate victory, but the resurrection showed Jesus won. He, defeat, he defeated sin, evil, and death. And that's why we celebrate him, because, because he is victorious. But without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Because, you know what, his death wouldn't have had the power it had. We'll be talking more about that next week. But without the resurrection, there is no gospel. But with the gospel, this gives us hope. I mean, you look at our lives, there is so much in life that is uncertain. I mean, you look at the Packers. If you're a Packers fan, you look ahead to the next year. This last year didn't turn out quite like you hoped for. This next year, we don't really know how the Packers are going to do. You can hope, but you aren't really sure. I mean, who's going to be the next president of the United States? We don't really know that for sure. What's that president going to do when they're in office? I don't know. I mean, you look at other things. Look at, will we be alive tomorrow? We don't even know that for sure. We hope so. I think most of us will be. Hopefully all of us will be. But we don't know that for sure either. It's been said that the only certainties in life are death and taxes. Death, taxes. Well, let me give you another certainty that trumps both of those. The certainty that Jesus won the victory. That death tr- tr- trumps any, anything else, especially things like death and taxes, because Jesus won the victory. But again, this is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus is victorious over sin and death. But there's no gospel if there's no resurrection. That's why we have to make sure that, that we don't, do not lose the resurrection as we focus so much on the cross. So this raises a key question. For instance, when we're sharing the gospel with someone else, or when we're thinking about the gospel for ourselves— does the resurrection play a key role in that? I mean, so oftentimes, if you're like me, we focus on the cross. In fact, right here in this passage, there are five words in verse 3 that many people say, you know what, this is the essence of the gospel right here. It's the most succinct, clear, short version of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. I've said that many times. I've pointed to those, those five words. And those words are, are very powerful. Each word, if you break it apart, each word is very important and powerful there. That Christ died for our sins. But that's part of the gospel. You have the second part here, and was raised again three days later. Without Christ's resurrection, there is no gospel. Without Christ's resurrection, his death didn't accomplish much of anything. But I look at how I frequently share the gospel with people. I spend so much time focusing on Jesus' death and the meaning of that death, the significance of that death. I talk about, you know what, Jesus was suffered. He was beaten. He's the sacrifice for our sins. He's the Passover lamb. He's the substitute. He, He bore God's wrath. He was separated from the Heavenly Father so that we wouldn't have to be. He took our sin. He paid our penalty. I focus on all these different things to try to explain the significance of the death of Christ. So what ends up happening is I I focus like 10 minutes on what Jesus did on the cross. And then the resurrection kind of becomes a bit of an afterthought of like 30 seconds, if that. And and then he was raised raised again from the dead. And so I don't, don't dismiss the fact that Jesus rose again. 
But what ends up happening is it kind of gets lost. But again, without the resurrection, there is no victory and there is no gospel. So we have to make sure that the, the resurrection is a key focus for us. Because the resurrection is the key to the hope that Jesus offers. Now back here to this passage, at the end of, of, of the actual creed, verses 6 and 7, lists more eyewitnesses who saw the risen Jesus. Uh, Paul wrote, after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, meaning a few have died, most are still alive. This is written within just a couple of decades of when Jesus was resurrected. So what Paul's essentially saying is, okay, if you doubt that Jesus rose again, which, I mean, let's face it, if someone came to you and said, hey, there was this guy who died, but now he's alive, how would you respond? I mean, for the most part, we'd probably be pretty cynical and skeptical. But Paul's saying, you know what, if you doubt this, just go talk to these people. I mean, if you want to, don't just talk to one, talk to like 10 or talk to hundreds. Because there are hundreds of people out there who saw Jesus after he died. They saw him walking around. He, had, he was resurrected. What a beautiful proof. What a beautiful thing that shows the resurrection of Christ. And one of the other things that we see here as we look at this, this testimony of the witnesses is that the resurrection gospel is, is transformative. It tra- transforms people's lives. I mean, you just look at the list here. You have, first of all... Uh, he, Jesus appeared to Cephas and Peter. I mean, where was Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed and on trial? I mean, Peter was denying that he even knew Christ multiple times. And then it says that, that Jesus appeared to the twelve. Where were the twelve in the days after Jesus was crucified? They were hiding in a locked room because they were afraid. I mean, you look at James. James is the brother of Jesus. He was a skeptic throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. What was the change for them? How did James become a pillar in the early church? How did the 12 disciples, including Peter, become so bold in, in their testimony of, of Christ? It's because they saw him resurrected. That gives hope. That gives confidence. That is transformational. And then Paul points to himself. He says, last of all, Jesus appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Well, that's a strange phrase, abnormally born, People frequently think that's talking about when Jesus appeared in a very dramatic way on the road to Damascus as Paul is traveling there. I don't think that's what it's referring to. Because this idea of being abnormally born is the idea of a, a fetus that is dead after it has either been miscarried or aborted. I mean, not a very pretty picture there, but Paul's saying, that was me. I was like a dead fetus. I was hopeless spiritually. There was nothing I could do to help myself and then Jesus came, the risen Jesus. He came and appeared to me and transformed my life. He said in verses 9 and 10, For I am the least of all the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So he's saying, you know what? I didn't deserve to be an apostle. I was persecuting the church. I was killing Christians. But by God's grace, that transformational encounter with the risen Christ and God's work in his life, he was transformed. That's the transformational power of the gospel. And here Paul is presenting himself as an example of someone who did not receive the gospel in vain, but instead internalized it and is letting it transform his life. 
And we started off today saying, death stinks. It really does. I mean, death, even when we have hope in Christ, it is certainly not comfortable. It's certainly not something that's appealing. It's certainly not something that, that we like at all. But it is a reality that we have to deal with here in this broken world. But our perspective on death changes radically depending on whether we have hope beyond the grave or not. I want to close in sharing the story of two different men who lost their wives, tragically. One of them is a bit fictional. comes from Shakespeare's play Macbeth. I'll say, I'm not a huge fan of that type of um, theater. I, I don't, Shakespeare kind of just doesn't really get me excited at all. Maybe you're the same, but this is still very relevant. Uh, Macbeth, just a spoiler alert, it ends with Macbeth dying, and just before Macbeth dies, his wife, Lady Macbeth, dies as well. Now, Lady Macbeth, when she dies, word comes to Macbeth, her husband, that she has died. And, and let me read for you just a little snippet of what he says in response to that. He says, Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Pretty stark, isn't it? Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You know what? Without hope in Jesus' resurrection, this is, you know, a fairly logical view. Because our world is so broken, things seem so futile, uh, death seems so final in this view when there's no resurrection. That is one view. But compare that to Monty Williams' perspective after his wife died. Did you hear what he said? He said, we did not lose my wife. When you lose something, you can't find it. I know exactly where my wife is. You know what? There is sadness. It is still a tragedy. But there is a confident hope because of the victory that Jesus won through his death and resurrection that he passes on to us. Paul closes out the passage, verse 11, by saying, Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. He said, here's the gospel. We preached it. You believed it, speaking to the Corinthians. And my prayer for us is that we will receive this gospel as well. It won't fall on deaf ears. It won't just be intellectual head knowledge that we agree with. Because you can't become a Christian, a true believer in Christ, any more by coming to church than you become a cyclist by going to a bike shop or an artist by going into a, um, an art, art museum or art studio. There is an investment you have to make. There is a, a transformation that takes place. And God wants to do that transformation in our lives through the gospel, through coming, us coming to faith in Christ. Perhaps you're in, in this place this morning, and you're not really sure, or maybe you know that you've never made that commitment to Christ and allowed him to transform you from the inside out through the gospel. And if that's you, I want to encourage you, don't take these things lightly, because death stinks. You certainly want to know that there is a confident hope on the other side through Christ. Maybe... Maybe you're like myself, where it's been a number of years since you've made that commitment to Christ, and you've embraced the gospel, but the question is then, are we standing on the gospel as our foundation? Does the gospel have first priority in our lives or not? Because it should. It needs to. So I encourage you to, to just examine yourself. We all need to do this on a regular basis to make sure the gospel is central in our lives, that we're depending on the, on the death and resurrection of Christ to give us ultimate hope and identity and purpose. And if you'd like to talk with someone, pray with someone, you can certainly contact me after the service or this week. 
Also, as, as with after every service, the prayer team will be up here. They would love to talk with you or pray with you as well if you would like to talk more about making Christ the center of your life. Now, in this passage, we came across an ancient creed, this set of, of beliefs that's passed down through the centuries. A creed that has been passed down on to our day-to-day is called the Apostles' Creed. It's more than 1,600 years old. It, it, it doesn't actually, it didn't come from the original apostles. It's a little bit newer than that. But it contains the essence of the apostles' teaching. And what, what I want to close with today, I, I want to invite us all to stand. And then we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. And then we will, uh, actually, I'll pray for us, and then we'll actually sing a song that reflects a lot of the truths within the Apostles' Creed. So I invite us to, to read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our Father, we thank you that you are such a gracious God, that you sent Christ into this world. And we just proclaim truths through our mouths, Lord. And I pray that these truths about Christ, about what you have done, that they will not merely be head knowledge that we agree with or that we reject, uh, but that, that these truths will be things that we internalize and that they will become the basis of our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ and the hope that that gives. And we thank you that according to Ephesians chapter 1, the same power that you use to raise Christ from the dead is available for us in our lives. And Lord, during these 40 days leading up to Easter, during the 40 days of prayer, we do want to lift up again the names of those who are written in the box up here. We know that these are people who desperately need the gospel. They need the hope of Christ. And I pray that you will be at work in their lives, bring about a resurrection to new life through faith in Christ. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your love for us and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.